0: welcome to rare nautical reads with me chris major in this episode we're continuing the book Fifteen Thousand miles in a catch by captain raymond rallier de Batti, published in 1922 we're on part 11 and we're continuing chapter 7 now if you haven't already please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner and there for five dollars a month you can join the crew and then together we can help preserve these old books for future sailing generations Now on with the story. Chapter 7 continued. At this point it will be well for me to give my readers a more accurate and detailed knowledge of our daily life during these winter months. Apart from working the coal, we took things a little easily. I knew that when the summer came we should have a time of hard, fatiguing toil devoted to seal hunting and blubber boiling, and therefore I wanted my men to have as much rest as possible while there was an opportunity. Sometimes We were as long as five days on board without going ashore lest a gale might spring up and we could not return it was rather tedious at times but we were fairly snug and kept cheerful although we were at anchor we always kept the night and day watches which were changed every three hours then those of us who had tucked into our berths would awake at eight o'clock which was the hour of dawn i needed no alarm clock la rose's biscuit mill Always aroused me, and having lain for a few minutes, listening to those grinding teeth at work on hard ship's biscuits, I would turn out for my coffee which had been prepared at that time by Esno. During the night watch, the man on duty was privileged to sit in the cook's galley reading and smoking by the light of an oil lamp, so that he did not suffer great hardships even during the snow squalls, though it was fairly cold. After breakfast, the men always went to haul in the fishing net, which had been put in overnight, and generally we caught enough to serve us for one day's meals. The fish were then handed over to the cook, who prepared them very skilfully, and at 10.30 we sat down to luncheon. It was not a bad menu. We used to have our fresh caught fish, with macaroni, peas or rice, followed by a dish of mussels which we found in large quantities on the rocks. This was washed down with drinking water, for we had got past our daily allowance of wine, and afterwards we would linger over tea and coffee while those who liked smoking had a quiet pipe. After this déjeuner, or luncheon, we used to do the real hard work of the day, so long as there was light. Our little procession would tramp down to Sandy Cove, three-quarters of an hour's walk away, with picks and shovels, shoulder-high, and there we would toil like navvies under the ledge of rock, getting out the coal. At first this was easy, for we had only to pick out the loose lumps and send them hurtling down, but after a while we came to the solid face of the seam, and then it was necessary to do blasting work. We would make a hole in the seam, thrust in a dynamite cartridge, light the fuse, and then rush away to a little distance. In a few moments there would be a tremendous explosion, and down would come tumbling the black boulders. It was, as I have said, a very fair quality of coal in Sandy Cove, but the grain of the wood was still visible in it, and sometimes it contained traces of amber. As soon as the light waned and darkness approached we used to seize upon the biggest lumps we could carry and hoisting them onto our shoulders would tramp back that three quarters of a mile and cast our burden into a heap on the beach day after day we used to fulfill this duty until at last our constant coming and going wore a pathway from the beach to the coal hole which could be seen clearly from a distance at these times we always carried a gun with us and were almost sure of bringing aboard a rabbit or two or a couple of wild fowl as a contribution to the larder. It was dark at five o'clock, and at six o'clock we were all very glad to sit down to the dinner cooked by Esno, who improved with experience. This was a more elaborate affair naturally than our dejeuner, and may be set out in the following menu soup from tins, fish, tinned meat, rabbit or duck, vegetables from tins, Kigoulian cabbage, coffee. Not a bad meal, my readers will say, yet I confess that I became very tired of this fare. It had a somewhat sickening monotony, and the tinned things especially had no charm for us. Nevertheless, we had no right to complain, for there was always plenty to eat, and we might consider ourselves as the pampered sons of fortune. After dinner, the crew would go to the small hull forward and spend the time smoking and singing to the accordion played by Agne, which was a continual source of pleasure to them. In the cabin, Henry and I used to talk of Paris and family affairs and of books we had read long ago and now remembered, discussing their plots and characters and ideas. To listen to our conversation, no one would have suspected that we were on a desert island with France on the other side of the world. We often used to talk also of our boyhood. After we had gone to sea, we had been separated for some years, but now that we had come together again, we ransacked our memories for the experiences of our early days And had many a hearty laugh over old adventures and mischiefs into which we plunged as boys together. Then I used to get out my kipling, in the French translation, and get absorbed in Kim, or the Jungle Book, or Henry would read to me, translating as he went along, out of a German book and papers discovered in the abandoned house at Observatory Bay. I was also busy making observations and writing up my log, every four hours during the day and night, One should make notes of the direction and strength of the wind and the character of the clouds and the humidity of the atmosphere and put, on record, the readings of the barometer and thermometer. I hope to publish all these notes in a more scientific story of my expedition, which I shall write in French. During the daytime also, I interested myself in making a collection of geological specimens and of shellfish, sea worms and other small creatures which I preserved in alcohol. These are now being classified and examined by French scientists. I also made a careful plan of Gazelle Basin and the surrounding mountains and took the soundings of Kirk Harbour, so that, as you see, I did not lead a lazy life. By this time, the captain and crew of the J.B. Charcot had an appearance which would have shocked our best friends. Our hair had grown long, our clothes had worn to rags. At least we had to darn and stitch and mend and ransack our wardrobes for oddments. I wore some thick woolen vests, which I had brought from the South Antarctic expedition with Dr Charcot, and I had also the naval uniform, which I used to wear when I was serving as a naval recruit, according to our conscript system, on board a French battleship. It was a curious place in which to don this uniform, but necessity pressed me to it. My brother and the men let their hair and beards grow long, and Agnès was more like a Viking than ever with his fine blonde beard but I used to cut the hair close on my face with clippers, as I always felt uncomfortable if it grew to any length. I suppose we looked as dirty a set of tramps as could be found in the wide world, yet we had traditions of cleanliness and tidiness, and Sunday was our washing day, when we went through an almost religious ceremony of boiling our undergarments in a big kettle. The men, too, were handy with a needle and thread, and in their spare time used to sit on deck, sewing up the holes and rents in their trousers and jackets. I must not forget to say that on the 14th of July, we celebrated the feast day of the Republic in good style. We cracked our last bottle of Madeira, which we had kept for that occasion, and raising our glasses, honoured the toast of Viva la France. My brother had cooked a special dinner, and we had dessert of dried plums and jam, followed by a glass of rum. We thought and spoke of the old folks at home in our dear native land, and our love went out across the wide waters to France. It was about this time that LaRose had a serious loss. Having lost that, he had lost everything, for it was his appetite. It was all due to a dish of mussels. LaRose liked mussels prodigiously, and as they were plentiful, and Esno cooked a vast quantity, he had no need to be sparing of them. He was not. He ate heartily, and beyond the bounds of what to him was moderation. I noticed nothing unusual. By this time I was accustomed to the appetite of this fine fellow, but on the following morning I was surprised that he did not get up, and going to his bunk found Paul LaRose in great suffering. There were dark rings round his eyes. He was feverish and kept tossing from one side to the other so that I could see he was very ill. I dosed him with medicine, but I am sorry to say that having failed to diagnose his complaint correctly, it made him worse. It was my brother who enlightened me. Why, it must be those mussels, he said, when I went to him for a consultation. And then he told me that he had sat and watched LaRose eating them with a kind of horrible fascination. Esno had wanted to remove the dish at the end of dinner, but LaRose said, Hi there, leave it for a bit. They are too good to go a-begging. And there, and then, he made short work of mussels, enough for all the rest of us, if we had just sat down to dinner. He paid... A heavy penalty for his enjoyment. He was violently sick and for several days was very peaky over his meals. It was a miserable condition for a lad to whom mealtime was the most important hour of the day. However, he recovered slowly and not long afterwards I was surprised to see him eating mussels again. What gave me more concern was that at this time Henry began to get seriously unwell. It was not due to those confounded mussels but he had a touch of gastritis, caused, I think, by living continually on tinned foods, and it made him look very haggard. He tried to hide his illness from me, but I knew that he lay awake at night and could get no rest. His nerves also became highly strung, for the only thing that seemed to brace him up a little was coffee, which he took at all times of the day and night. This, of course, was bad for him, and for the first time since my arrival in Kugulian, I became low-spirited and had gloomy thoughts. Nevertheless, work had to be done and when September came, Agne and I started on a long boat trip to explore the coastline on the northeastern side of Gazelle Basin and the great mountains of the interior. We stopped first in Kirk Harbour as there was too much sea and a heavy rainstorm. As this promised to last some time, we beached our boat and walked back to Gazelle Basin across the cliffs, but when fair weather set in, we returned and found our boat quite safe. We then worked round to Elizabeth Harbour, and on the night of the 16th of September, put up our tent at the bottom of this little bay. We could not sleep a wink during the night, for we were surrounded by a large herd of seals that had just returned to Kerguelen after the winter. They made a fearful noise around us, roaring in their deep, gruff, reverberating voices like lions and tigers in a tropical jungle, and they came so close to us that Agne became scared. Captain, he said, if one of those big seals rolls into this tent, we shall be squashed. It was not an agreeable prospect, certainly, and many times during the night one or other of us went out of the tent to throw stones at those monsters lying about like big black boulders in the darkness. The next day, not having been squashed, we went further along the coast and found a number of penguin, petrel, and other eggs. They were the first we had found in the island of desolation. We explored the coastline, from Elizabeth Harbour to Vulcan Cove, and found it very dangerous, for the sea was strewn with rocks and uncharted islands. Indeed, our old chart was useless at this part of Kugulian, for even Elizabeth Point was marked a mile too far to the north. We now left our boat and went afoot down a deep gorge through the mountains. It was a marvellous walk of twelve miles along a series of valleys full of freshwater lakes with the mountains rising straight and steep and grim and black on either side of us. Agni and I were walking on a ledge of rock along these valleys, with the gorge below us and the basalt walls rising sheer above us. It seemed to me like a walk through Dante's Inferno, and I remember Gustav Dor's famous pictures of the mountains of hell. But there were no devils to trouble us, and down below in the valley moss and grass grew with some luxuriance, and the sky high over the prison walls was reflected in the fresh water pools. We came through the Studer Valley, named by a German party of explorers, which is a long straight gorge driven like a funnel through the mountains and seen by us very clearly when the J.B. Charcot had sailed down Hillsborough Bay. It formed quite a good road with easy travelling. After this tramp, we went back to Elizabeth Harbour. I wanted very much to explore the northern bays, but we were overtaken again by dirty weather, and though we tried to get out in our rowing boat, we were beaten back to harbour again. We spent two days watching the seals for the lack of better occupation, and Agni and I acquired a great deal of new knowledge about those creatures. As many of my readers have not been so far as Kogulian or other haunts of the seal, it may be of interest to them if I describe their habits more closely than I have yet done in this story. After the winter months, the full-grown males come first to shore in the last days of August. They were very big, being more than 20 feet long. In the water, their trunks were hidden, and when they scrambled upon the rocks, and especially when they were angry, they elevated their short trunks by which they get the name of sea elephants, and gave vent to deep roars. About the 15th of September, the females followed their lords and masters, and as soon as they were on shore, they gave birth to their young. We saw some of the little seals born and the mothers seemed to suffer a good deal crying and groaning in a strangely human way. At these times, the females seemed eager to go out to sea again but the old bulls kept watchful eyes on them and would hustle after them, round them off from the rocky ledge and push them back onto the shore. The females were only about one third of the length of the males and each male had about 12 as his wives but they did not keep them undisputed and unchallenged. Through the sea came a throng of bull elephants eager to fight for the possession of the females. The old fellows, as soon as they saw these enemies approaching, rushed at a great pace to the water's edge to give instant battle to them. Then a fierce and bloody fight would take place, thrilling and fearful to any human being who might be watching. One of the newcomers would roll his eyes upon a gaudy beauty on the shore and attempt to get towards her but he could only do so past the bleeding and wounded body of an old warrior who was already the hero of a hundred fights. I saw one such duel, which lives in memory. The bull elephant, who had been first in possession, raised himself on the forepart of his body with his hind quarters right off the ground, and with his great jaws gaping and uttering deep trumpet blasts, he awaited the coming of his foe. He found one worthy of his strength, a male as big as himself, as fierce as himself, as strong as himself. They fought for twenty minutes head to head, jaws to jaws, charging each other like battering rams, shoving and pushing with monstrous force, biting and gnawing at each other with appalling ferocity. They made for each other's neck and scrunched their jaws into the flesh of it until shaken off and hurled backwards by the other beast. The neck of each sea elephant was covered with long, deep cuts, Their blood poured down and made ruddy pools among the rocks in which they wallowed and struggled, still biting fiercely and shooting out their necks with that quick, sudden, powerful jerk of which I had learnt to be aware in my own combats with them. There was something grotesquely terrible and soul-affrighting in this combat between these two titanic warriors, yet my eyes were spellbound by the haunting interest of it. At last, the male who had been first on shore weakened... His gross body was panting and gasping. The blood was streaming from a score of wounds. One eye had been torn from its socket and his force was spent. Suddenly, he gave up the fight and with a despairing roar, he plunged across the rocky ledge and disappeared into the sea. The victor came leisurely to the camp of the vanquished and careless of his own wounds, which had made him a mass of gory flesh, careless also of the females who were now his right of conquest, lay down in the centre of them and slept. These war heroes do not pay the slightest attention to their wounds, which heal so quickly that in two or three days they are cured. But to the end of their long lives they bear the scars of these great fights, and out of the water I have seen old sea dogs climb with torn hides and eyeless sockets and missing or half-gnawed flippers as records of the titanic warfare they have waged upon their rivals and enemies. And always, when I have seen them, there has come to my mind Rudyard Kipling's story of The White Seal and his description of those great beasts who fought in the breakers and fought in the sand and fought on the smooth-worn basalt rocks of the nurseries. A hundred times I thought I saw Sea Catch, a huge grey seal with almost a mane on his shoulders and long wicked dog teeth. When he heaved himself up on his front flippers, he stood more than four feet clear of the ground and his weight... If anyone had been bold enough to weigh him, was nearly 700 pounds. He was scarred all over from the marks of savage fights, but he was always ready for just one fight more. He would put his head on one side, as though he were afraid to look his enemy in the face. Then he would shoot it out like lightning, and when the big teeth were firmly fixed on the other seal's neck, the other seal might get away if he could, but sea catch would not help him. I remember now that sea catch was a fur seal and not a sea elephant like those round Kagulian but Kipling's description will stand for the berserker of those tribes that fought upon the rocks at Elizabeth Harbour these big brutes are not afraid of attacking man and I have already described one great fight we had with them we had others later in our history and I will give praise to the enduring courage of the warriors really they were no match for us our agility was more effective than their strength One gun with its narrow tube was more a master of death than their monstrous violence. But it was dangerous when we were hemmed in by the herd. They would come straight for us, and when we were tackling one great roaring fellow, the others would come ever so quickly and quietly and steadily behind over the smooth rock with their noiseless bodies and try to catch us in their jaws with that lightning thrust of the head. We had to look slippy, as English sailors say. Never once would the bull seals turn back while their females were with them. Face to the foe in victory or defeat is the watchword of the fighting seal. When they were wounded, it only angered them more and did not make them faint-hearted or ready to yield. They only yielded to death, and they died fighting and roaring. But men are tricky fellows, and we dwarves learnt to kill the giants. We even learnt to frighten them, a thing that seemed much more difficult when we first attacked them with loaded clubs, and did not scare them at all, but only made them fierce. It is curious that if we threw small pebbles at them, they would waddle away, and that is how we kept them at a distance when we did not crave for their society. The female's eyes would flash with a yellow fire when we played that trick upon them, and I did not like the ugly look of those eyes. When undisturbed, the seals lay around on the rocks in families, each male surrounded by his dozen wives like an old Turk, and kept watchful, jealous eyes upon the other bulls. For hours they would rest lazily, sleeping and dozing in luxurious ease, and with monstrous comicality they would scratch themselves with their flippers, rolling over a little to get at some ticklish spot or curling their tails up. However awkward they were on shore, they were magnificent in strength and grace in the water, swimming with the force and directness of a torpedo, and careless of breakers that would smash a boat to pieces. It was a great And glorious thing to watch one of those huge breakers rolling in and to see the seals facing them unmoved with dauntless strength and courage, not shifted out of their position by the full force of the hurtling sea. But the little ones were the jolliest things to watch, so mirthful and so full of pranks and the sheer joy of life. When they were born, one baby to each mother, they were only three feet long and they are covered with very smooth and very long black hair. After three weeks, this falls off and a greyish or yellow hair, very close-cropped, is left on their plump little bodies. As soon as they are suckled, the youngsters leave their parents and go off altogether. They have the best of fun, learning to swim in the shallow streams where all day long they play, frisking and barking like young dogs, so that the noise of a seal nursery may be heard for miles. They roll each other over and play all kinds of pranks in the water, and on the shore scuffing crawling leaping darting all together until they get tired and go to sleep on the black sand under the basalt rocks to wake again in a little while and begin the game over the old men seals and the old women seals take no notice of these brawling youngsters and soon they learn to fight like old warriors to catch fish while they shoot below the sea to escape the killer whales and to capture their sweethearts by those deadly combats on the rocks agne and i Lying by our tent in Elizabeth Harbour, watched the mothers with their little ones, who were still too young to go to the playground, and Kipling's lullaby came singing through my mind. You mustn't swim till you're six weeks old, or your head will be sunk by your heels, and summer gales and killer whales are bad for baby seals. Are bad for baby seals, dear rat, as bad as bad can be, but splash and grow strong, and you can't be wrong, child of the open sea. After six days at Elizabeth Harbour, when we had ample opportunity of studying these little ways of the sea elephants and their babies, my comrade and I took to the boat again and fought our way back to the J.B. Charcot. It is almost needless to say that we had another gale, and once more we put on our life belts and rowed until our arms ached and our hands were blistered over the surging sea, which tried to drag us down into its depths and to swamp us with its crested waves and to bash us to bits with its blows and buffets but we escaped all this ferocity and sprang ashore once more in Gazelle Basin. On board the little ship, we found my brother and his comrades making preparations to leave the harbour, in which, on the whole, we had found safe shelter. We set up a flag mast on shore and a bottle containing a message to any ship that might come that way, telling the programme of our future and saying that we proposed to go to Observatory Bay for a few months. So we sailed out of Gazelle Basin on the 15th of October 1908, in search of new scenes and new adventures. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going around. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate's level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced Seamanship training videos that we do each month, which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it, and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So, if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So, I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.